Rules for Priests. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative, such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or cut their bodies. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their God because they present the offering made to the Lord by fire, the food of their God, they are to be holy. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because I the Lord am holy, I who make you holy. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father, she must be burned in the fire. The high priest, the one among his brothers, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of God or desecrate it, because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people. So he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand. Nor who is, who is hunchbacked or dwarfed or who has an eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron, the priest, who has any defect, is to come near to present the offering made to the Lord by fire. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God, as well as the holy food, Yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar, and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. Thanks, Carl. Well, it really uh, flies in the face of uh, Victorian sensibilities, doesn't it, uh, the old uh, Leviticus? You know, there's, uh, it's, it doesn't keep anything kind of su- subdued uh, like uh, old Victorian England. 
can I just say before uh, I forget and before I begin, uh, I made another mistake in the bulletin, would you believe? I can't believe this. So last week I, I said this thing about this fallacy and then in the, I tried to correct myself in the bulletin. I got it wrong a second time. And I was like, I can't believe it. I'm such an idiot. Anyway, it should be the fallacy of affirming the consequent. Okay, that's clarified now. If you know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't, don't worry. Uh, Leviticus. Leviticus uh, we're looking at Leviticus 21 and 22 this morning and we've been looking at these, uh, uh, the chapters 17 on for the last uh, little while, for the last few weeks. And, uh, and we've covered a whole lot of really, uh, sort of, I guess you might call it practical topics like idolatry and, uh, and, and sex, uh, imitating the holiness of God, loving our neighbour, uh, last week we did concepts of justice and punishment uh, and today we sort of flip back uh, to some of the, the early themes of the book of Leviticus, some of the kind of imagery about priesthood and cleanness and sacrifices and all that kind of stuff uh, and that might seem a little bit odd to us uh, you know, to sort of put among all these sort of moral sort of ideas to put uh, things about uh, cleanness and ceremonies and so on uh, but I think as we come to this chapter, we have to remember that those two ideas were really tightly connected uh, in Israel's world uh, because the moral and the ceremonial kind of ex- explained each other uh, and hopefully we'll see that uh, as we go through. I have to say as we, uh, as we begin too that I think these chapters are, are actually really difficult. Uh, I have to say that uh, I find them immensely confusing uh, and, I, and I don't really feel as though I've, I've really come to terms with them myself. Uh, and so what we're really just going to be doing this morning, I guess, is just kind of beginning to stitch some of the elements together to think about what God was saying to Israel and to think about how that's kind of picked up and transformed uh, by the Gospel of Jesus. So I think the first thing uh, in approaching these two chapters together is to work out what's the thread, what's the thing which ties it together. Did anyone notice as we went through that there was a repeated phrase? Did anyone pick up? uh, There was a phrase which was repeated three times. I hope there's not more than one. Eric, do you know? I am holy, almost. I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's a bit of a giveaway in the in the sermon title that was up there before. So I think three times in that passage you get that phrase, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Uh, You can find it in verse 8. There it says, Regard them as holy, regard the priests as holy, because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy, because I, the Lord, am holy, I who make you holy. Uh, Then in verse 15, talking about the high priest, Uh, It's saying he ought not to do that so he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And then in verse 23, uh, about the person with the defect, yet because he has his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes him holy. But then as you push into chapter 22, you find the same phrase uh, another three times. So verse 9 of chapter 22 The priests are to keep my requirements so that they do not become guilty and die for treating them with contempt. I am the Lord who makes them holy. Uh, Verses 15 to 16 in chapter 22. The priests must not desecrate the sacred offerings the Israelites uh, present to the Lord by allowing them to eat the sacred offerings and so bring upon them the guilt 
uh, guilt requiring payment. I am the Lord who makes them holy. And finally, the last one is in uh, verse 32 of chapter 22. Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy. So if you like, those repeated phrases, that repeated phrase holds these uh, two chapters together. But, but what is the, the message, I guess? What's the kind of the basic idea? I think the most uh, helpful thing to do probably is to summarise each, each of the six blocks which end with that phrase. So the first uh, section is verses 1 to 9 of chapter 21 where it talks about a priest, uh, he's not allowed to make himself unclean by coming into contact with uh, a dead body unless it was a dead body of a close relative. The basic point behind that was that they, they couldn't go to a funeral, right, unless it was the funeral of... Uh, their mother or father or, or, or a really close relative. Death uh, was unclean uh, and coming into uh, contact with death would defile the priest and so he would, wouldn't be fit then for the presence of God. Uh, verses 5 and 6 are about priests not shaving the edges of their beards and cutting their bodies. Uh, a few weeks ago we came across those uh, requirements uh, and those practices were tied up with other religions. So so the basic point is the priests weren't to defile themselves by sort of involving themselves in the religious practices of the nations around them. Verses 7 and 8 say that a priest couldn't defile himself by marrying a prostitute or a divorced woman and also in verse 9 that's kind of taken another step further where if a priest's daughter became a prostitute she was to be killed and her body was to be burned. So the idea then is of maintaining, if you like, the sexual purity uh, of the priesthood. Uh, the next section, so that's the first section, verses 1 to 9, the next section, 10 to 15, covers pretty much the same stuff but instead of being about the priest, it's about the high priest. Uh, and these regulations are a bit more intense. So the high priest uh, couldn't let his hair become untidy or tear his clothes, that's not a fashion requirement, but those things were bound up with, with mourning. So again, it's this kind of funeral thing. Uh, so, again, the high priests aren't allowed to come into contact with dead bodies, but they're also not allowed to mourn in the typical way. They weren't allowed to let their hair go, go messy or tear their clothes as a kind of a, a, a sign of their mourning. But more than that, they, they also weren't allowed to go to the funeral of even their mother or their father. Right? So they weren't to come into contact with any death in any way, shape or form of another person. Uh, moreover, the, uh, the priests, uh, we, knew, we know they, they couldn't marry a, a prostitute or a divorced woman, but the regulation for the, for the high priest goes a step further. He, he wasn't even allowed to marry a widow. Now, that was uh, morally o- okay for other people in the Old Testament, but uh, the standard of, of the sexual purity of the high priest was higher, in other words, than for anyone else. He could only marry a, a virgin. Now these uh, first two lots of regulations, I think, all point in the direction of saying that the the priests, the people who served in the presence of God, had to be untainted by the world around them. By coming into contact with death, by by kind of defiling themselves uh, sexually, they they risked being defiled by their contact with the uh, the world around them. To come into contact with 
uh, decay and unholiness and uncleanness in the world around them would defile the priests and make them unfit for the presence of God. So it was a picture, if you like, of the, of the defiling effects, uh, the corrupting influence uh, of the world. Then in verses 16 to 24, there are those regulations about physical defects. Uh, no priest was, uh, who was uh, blind or lame or disfigured, deformed, crippled, hunchbacked, dwarfed, who had an eye problem, who had running sores or damaged te- testicles, none of those people could offer sacrifices. Now the rule about damaged testicles is kind of like, well, what is going on with that? Why? That seems a bit sort of strange. Why pick on that? But you have to remember that at the time these laws were given, it was pretty common for nations to, to, to castrate people. And in fact, it was very common for kings to castrate the servants who worked for them, who worked in their palaces. If you wanted to be the king's servant, you know, the cost was you, know, you had to be castrated. Uh, and that's kind of quite interesting, actually, when you think about the fact that in the Old Testament, the temple of God was cast as God's palace. It, God was the king. That was where uh, God ruled from, the, the, the temple. It was his palace. Uh, and God was basically saying, well, unlike the other nations, if you want to serve in my palace, you want to serve in my kingdom, you have to be whole. You have to be uh, you know, kind of undeformed, uh, un, without defect. No priest, whatever the the, the deformity, uh, they were unable to serve in the presence of God. Those people were still provided for. God wasn't, uh, you know, kind of being mean to them. They were still able to share in the sacrifices that the priest bought. Uh, They were were still provided for in that way, but they couldn't serve in the presence of God. And that was intended to be a picture to the whole nation that in order to serve in the presence of God, people needed to be whole and complete and undamaged by the effects of sin in the world. So that's the first uh, three sections. Then uh, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 22, there are regulations regarding the cleanness of the priests when they ate some of the sacrifices. you might know, you might remember that uh, there were a whole lot of ways that people could become ceremonially unclean. Some of those ways included coming into contact with the dead body, coming into contact with certain types of animals, coming into contact with certain kinds of bodily emissions. And what this, that section is saying is that if a priest came into contact with any of that kind of uncleanness, then he wouldn't be able to uh, eat any of the sacrifices that the priest brought. Uh, if he did, he would be cut off from the presence of God, which probably means that he would die. Uh, if he did become unclean, he could wash himself, he could go through that particular ceremony and he would be clean again. But all of that, again, it's another illustration uh, about God and about relationship with God. It was an illustration that in order to have fellowship with God, in order to eat with God, in order to eat around God's table, the priest had to be clean. In order to have fellowship with God and kind of, if you like, share a meal as a, as a picture of fellowship with God, the priest had to be clean. In verses 10 to 16, there are more regulations about who could eat the sacrifices. 
Uh, the members of a priest's family could eat the sacrifices. Uh, so could a slave bought by a priest or a slave born into a priest's household. But a married daughter uh, couldn't eat the sacrifices neither could a hired worker. In other words, what's the basic point? The basic point is that in order to share at God's table you needed to be part of the right family. You needed to be part of the right household. You needed to be part of a, a, a priestly family. Finally, in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, there are regulations about the kind of sacrifices or the quality of the sacrifices which could be offered. Sacrifices with defects couldn't be offered. And if you go through chapter 22, you'll find that a lot of the same sacrifices that were given for the... Sorry, a lot of the same deformities which kept the priests out also are the same deformities which kept the sacrifices from being offered. Animals... Uh, with physical de- deformities, were unworthy uh, of being used as a sacrifice to God. There are some exceptions, part of God's grace, but that was the basic thrust. So there's a pretty uh, brief run-through of these two chapters. Uh, and I suppose if you were to summarise all of those kind of pictures, all that illustration, what's the basic point I think the answer would be this. Everything which is wrong with the world cannot come into the presence of God. So death and sickness and deformity, they couldn't come into the temple and that was an illustration of the fact that that all the things wrong with the world, all all the distortions that sin has brought into the world, can't come into contact with God. The key to understanding what this chapter is about and what it was trying to say to Israel and hence what it, this side of the cross what it might be saying to us, the key is to realise that as is the case so often in Leviticus, the physical world of the priests was an illustration of the spiritual world of Israel. The physical world of the priests was an illustration of the, of the spiritual world of Israel. God had said to the people when he brought them out of Egypt, when he rescued them, he said that they were going to be a kingdom of priests. And the priests were a picture, they served as a picture of what the whole nation was supposed to be. What was the nation supposed to do? Well, well, turn to chapter 22, to the last few verses, to, to verse 31 of chapter 22. So verse 31 Here's what they were to do. Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Right? God rescued them out of Egypt. He rescued them out of Egypt so that they could serve him. He made them holy. That is, he set them apart to serve him and to honour him. But here's the problem that holiness was fragile. God brought them into a relationship with him but there was this constant danger that they would dishonour God and they would turn away from God and and that their status as God's uh, people would uh, would be taken away. The first section of these two chapters showed that their contact with the world could defile them and defile God and profane God. The sin which pollutes the world was in danger of of rubbing off on them and distorting them 
and turning them away from God. The physical deformities were a picture of deeper spiritual conditions. Blindness highlighted spiritual blindness. Deafness highlighted uh, being unable to hear and obey God. Uh, The uncleanness, the bodily discharges, the infectious diseases were a reminder that the hearts of the people were constantly spewing out filth and rebellion against God. Uh, The regulations about who could eat the the sacrifices were a reminder that only those who belonged to God could share in the blessings that he had given to Israel. And the laws about sacrifices were a reminder that even though God had set these people apart to be his own, there was this ever-present danger that what they would give back to God was cheap and shoddy. Israel had this special privilege of, of, of being set apart to know God and serve God, but they were in danger of losing that. That danger was uh, made clear the very first time any, any priests were ever ordained, back in Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, to 10, do you remember Aaron's two sons? The very day that the priests were, were first ordained, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they, they did the wrong thing. They, they dishonoured God and they died. When we get to chapters 25 and 26 of Leviticus, we'll see even more clearly how fragile their position with God was. Now the danger that these chapters portray is that even though they were set apart by God to be his people, the danger was that they might lose that by dishonouring God, by their unholiness. But what about us? If this chapter serves as an illustration of the, of the obstacles to, to knowing God and to and to being with God, then surely we've got some problems too. You know, doesn't our contact with the world corrupt us and, and, and defile us? Aren't we influenced by that? The sin which pollutes our world so easily rubs off on us and distorts us and turns us away from God. More than that, even from the time we're born we're distorted by it so much as the influence of, of sin and the distortion of sin, we're, we're born sinners. We're born distorted and defective. We're defective, yes, physically. I'm sure we all have physical ailments. But more to the point, we're spiritually defective. We don't listen to God. God says, do this, love me, and we don't. We, we hear, but we don't listen. The bodily discharges, the infectious diseases of, uh, of, of Leviticus, they all remind us that we're filthy. We too have filthy hearts and, and we're not fit to be invited to God's feast, to God's celebration. We were made to relate to God and to know God and to walk with God But sin has so damaged us and distorted us that we're unfit for what we are created for. So there are the obstacles that these two chapters lay out before us. What I want to do now is to 
think about and to highlight the huge number of ways that in the gospel, in the ministry of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, those obstacles are overcome. It's actually, it's actually quite amazing. Let me highlight some of the examples, some of the ways that this stuff, these obstacles are overturned by the ministry and the work of Jesus. So Jesus uh, in the New Testament is called the great high priest. He's called our great high priest. But Jesus came into contact with death all the time. Uh, Jesus visited the dead daughter of a Roman ruler. Uh, He visited the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He not only came into contact with the death of of other people who died, but he came into uh, contact with death most obviously when he himself died on the cross uh, and was laid in a tomb until the third day. Uh, the high priest in Leviticus was not to marry a prostitute uh, or a divorcee or a widow, but in the New Testament, uh, the church is described as the bride of Christ, the dirty, rotten church full of spiritual prostitutes, uh, the church which is full of people who spent their lives selling themselves to other gods. Uh, Jesus is described as marrying that church. The New Testament uh, also calls those who follow Jesus priests because, uh, because in following Jesus they, they serve God as they go about their lives. But one of the first people to be saved in the book of Acts uh, is an Ethiopian eunuch. But eunuchs couldn't be priests. Uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus too talking about uh, singleness, he says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Now Jesus was talking metaphorically. He's talking about the fact that some people in a desire to serve God's kingdom might, might maintain a celibate life. But here's the extraordinary thing is that Jesus uses the imagery of a eunuch to describe how someone might give themselves to God's kingdom. And yet in the Old Testament, a eunuch was a person who couldn't serve in the presence of God. It's been, this, the whole situation has been totally reversed. In Leviticus 22, uh, the sacrificial food uh, was not to be shared with anyone unclean or anyone outside the priest's family. It was only the priests who were allowed to eat it. But, in, uh, but Jesus says in John's Gospel, that if we are to receive eternal life, then we need to share in his sacrifice on the cross. And, he, and he's speaking metaphorically, he says in John 6, that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So not only does Jesus say that we need to share in his sacrifice, feast metaphorically on his sacrifice, he says that we're welcome to, we're welcome to eat it, when in the Old Testament the only people who could eat it were, were the priests and the priest's family and the priest's slaves. In Leviticus 22, imperfect sacrifices were forbidden but in the New Testament the language of sacrifice is applied to our praise, to our confession of Jesus, to the giving up of our lives to serve Jesus and we're told that those imperfect sacrifices are favourably received by God. One of the most astonishing uh, examples of that is in, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius is told by God that that his prayers, this is the Gentile Cornelius, that his prayers have gone up before God and the language for that is 
is, is being used is the language of, of sacrifice from the Old Testament. Those prayers had gone up before God and had been heard. So the question then is, why the transformation? What has happened? What has happened between Leviticus 21 and 22 and the ministry of Jesus? What has that changed to, to, to reverse all these realities? The answer lies in who Jesus is. You see, the great danger for the priests in Leviticus 21 and 22 was that by coming into contact with the they would be defiled and corrupted by sin. That was a danger, wasn't it? But here's the thing about Jesus. He was the great high priest who entered into our defiled and our deformed world and he remained uncorrupted by sin. We could never approach God because of our corruption, because of our sin, but in Jesus, God has approached us. What's more, Jesus not only entered our world and came out the other side clean, he entered our polluted world and if you like he kind of swept up all the filth in people's lives and he nailed it to the cross. He did that so that whoever believes in him can experience the presence of God now through the Holy Spirit and ultimately when we're resurrected from the dead physically in the presence of God. In Leviticus, the cripples couldn't enter the presence of God, but Jesus healed cripples as a physical illustration of the power of the gospel. The blind couldn't enter the presence of God, but Jesus healed the blind. Eunuchs couldn't enter the presence of God, but Jesus could make eunuchs acceptable to the presence of God. The high priest couldn't come into contact with the dead but Jesus could come into contact with the dead because he could raise the dead. He could defeat death. The high priest couldn't marry a prostitute but Jesus could marry a church who is spiritually a prostitute because he, he makes them pure. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her and that in doing that he washed her with the word and will present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The benefits of the sacrifices couldn't be shared outside the priest's family, but in Jesus we're his bride, we're brought into his family. In Jesus we're his slaves, he's bought us with the cost of the cross. He calls us his brother, he's made us God's children. In every way he's made us suitable to share in the blessings of God. The point is this, that everything which kept us from the presence of God in Leviticus has been totally overturned by Jesus because Jesus not only remained undefiled by the world but in dying and rising and pouring out the, the spirit of blessing he is able to transform the world from corruption to purity. He remained pure, yes but he is so powerful and his death purchased from God the purity and the transformation and the righteousness both now and finally uh, before God. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think there are two uh, important consequences uh, for these realities. What does it mean for us? First and most immediately uh, it means this. 
It means that if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. Jesus is the only one uh, who can bring the forgiveness and the reconciliation with God and the cleansing that you need to know God and to have fellowship with God. Uh, If you want to know God, you need to plead with Jesus to save you. But it uh, it means more than that, I think, as well. It means that if you do know Jesus and, and you're, you're trusting and following Jesus, it means that even now you are holy. No matter how messed up your life is now, if you trust in Jesus to make that right, if you trust in Jesus to make you whole and complete and perfect and blameless, then even if you don't look at now, even if your life is kind of mucked up now, if you trust in Jesus... You are set apart for God. You are holy. And you will be finally transformed into that reality because in Jesus, that's what God has promised. In Jesus, our holiness is not fragile but firm and secure. That's the first thing. What's the other consequence? I think the other consequence uh, is this. If we, if we uh, want people that we come into contact with to be forgiven uh, and to be transformed and to be saved and to know God, then we need to introduce them to Jesus, don't we? That's the most crucial thing that we can do. It's, uh, it's fashionable in some Christian circles. Uh, these days we'll talk about incarnational ministry. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Uh, but the idea is that just like Jesus came into our stinking rotten world to save sinners, that the way that we save people is by going into their stinking rotten world. Not not so much to tell people about Jesus, but to do life with them, uh, you know, or to live alongside them. Uh, that's the way that we save them. But I think there's something really important that uh, we need to remember. Uh, it's kind of obvious but it's actually pretty easy to forget. And that is, you're not Jesus and I'm not either. You see, you don't save people by living among them in the same way that Jesus did. You save people by introducing them to Jesus. Jesus was the one who entered our stinking rotten world and remained undefiled and conquered sin on the cross and can bring transformation to the world because he pours out the Spirit, you and I can't do that. All we can do is speak true words about who Jesus is and tell them the Gospel. That's not to say that we shouldn't enter people's stinking rotten worlds and be compassionate and kind, but it does mean that if we don't tell people the Gospel, if we don't introduce them to Jesus then it's not going to change anything. The only way to move from unholiness and uncleanness to holiness and cleanness and righteousness, the only way is to know Jesus Christ. In the final analysis, uh, these two chapters of uh, Leviticus are a grand illustration, if you like, of the obstacles which stand between each one of us and the presence of God and fellowship with God and the only way 
for those obstacles to be removed in our lives and the lives of other people is by knowing and loving and trusting God's Son, Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we often don't uh, feel the tremendous separation that exists uh, between us and you because of sin, between the world and you because of sin. Father, we grow accustomed uh, to distance. We grow accustomed uh, to sin. And yet, Father, we, uh, we thank you that in Jesus Christ uh, those obstacles and that separation has been taken away. Father, we on our own are defiled and deformed and defective people. And so we pray that in your beloved Son that you would rescue us and redeem us that you would accept us, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are, that you would accept us in Jesus Christ and that accepting us you would begin that transformation into his likeness. Father, please help us to uh, put that message, the message of the gospel and the hope of the gospel before others Lord, help us to do that with compassion and with great kindness. Lord, help us to take it not simply to the wealthy and to the well-to-do and the people who've got their lives together, but Lord, to the poor and to the broken. Lord, help us to take it to them, but help us to remember that it's the words of truth about Jesus which save people. Father, we pray that as we do that, that you would rescue and redeem uh, people from Launceston, from our community, from our state and from our world. And Lord, that together they might be built up uh, into a holy people who love you and who serve your son. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.